The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 773. If you don't own a Bible, please stop by the information table after the service. We'd like to give you one as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, only you know where each and every person in this room is at. Only you know each and every person's story, the things that have led them here, the 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 good and faithful decisions of their life and the painful, hurtful, perhaps sinful decisions of their life that have led them here. Only you know all of those things. And Lord, not only do you, are you the only one who knows those, you are the only one who can steward your word truly to the hearts of your people. So Lord, would you do that during this time? Meet each and every person where they are at Lord, help me to be faithful to your word, faithful to your truth, and gentle and gracious as I do so. Pray that you would meet us powerfully during this time, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, for those of you who perhaps started coming during the summer, and then just for those of us who um, have been here for a while, maybe this is a good reminder. At Park, we preach through books of the Bible. And in the spring and in the fall, we choose books to preach through. And then in our summer months, it's been our rhythm for a long time now to preach through the Psalms. So for instance, if you've been here for all of or part of the last three months, we've preached through 10 Psalms. And that's our rhythm. We preach through books of the Bible, mainly and most importantly, because we believe that it is uh, the inspired word of God. It is truth about who God is, what he's like, and who we are supposed to be as human beings and how we are supposed to live in light of that truth. We started the book of Matthew. I, I researched this the other day, and it actually kind of shocked me because I, I, I didn't think it was this far back. We started the book of Matthew in January of 2020, just a few months before the pandemic started. That's how long we've been in the book of Matthew, and here we come back to it today. So this will be our first sermon back into Matthew throughout the, the rest of the fall. One of the reasons that we chose Matthew amongst many is we're presented in Matthew this idea of an upside-down kingdom. So our banner over here on the wall has a crown on it, but that crown is turned upside down because so often what God in the flesh is doing, what Jesus is doing is saying, you think you know what God is like. You think you know what you're like. You think you know how you're supposed to live. Let me tell you how it really is. Let me tell you what God's really like. And he often is flipping our paradigms for us. Here's a quote from one of our past Matthew study journals. This is something that our lead pastor Gary wrote in that journal. In the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is inviting us into a whole new way of life with a new set of values and a new type of community. Really, it's a whole new kingdom that is being established right here and right now in the middle of this world. And compared to some of the prevailing values of our culture, it's a bit of an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom where the outcasts are welcome, the humble honored, enemies are loved, the poor are esteemed, strangers befriended, and the guilty are forgiven. It's a kingdom where the king is enthroned on a cross his victory comes through his death, and his death gives life to the world. Lastly, we also preach through books of the Bible so we don't dodge hard things in Scripture. And there are hard things in Scripture. Our passage today is one of those. Make no mistake, I am going to argue to you, I think it is filled with beautiful, amazing things but there are hard things in this passage. There are confusing things in this passage. Somehow Jesus weaves together marriage, divorce, and on some lines about eunuchs. And we come to it potentially with really strong feelings, with really strong emotions, with stories that perhaps line up, maybe they don't line up. And I obviously don't know in what place each of you is at. When you read this passage, or as this passage is 
read over you today, I don't know how it sits with you. I don't know how it rests with you. And I have prepped this week, and as I stand here now, I feel the inadequacy of being able to address everyone where they're at and where this passage lands on their soul. Before the last service, uh, one of our staff members, Christina, was praying over me, and she was praying that I, I wouldn't feel like I have to answer every question or get to every caveat, and somehow, not being on staff too, too long, Christina knows me pretty well because that's my heart, and I just won't be able to do it. I won't be able to answer every question or get to every caveat. So, if I don't address something that you have a question about, or maybe if I address something that resonates with you and you wanna talk about it more, you wanna process it, you wanna pray about it, if you're convicted about something or maybe you're mad about something that either Jesus says in this passage or maybe something that I'm going to say, please email me. It's jason at parkchurch.org. If you don't wanna email me, that's fine. Email, please email our elders, elders at parkchurch.org. We want to be able to process those things with you. If you've closed your Bible, go ahead and open it back up to Matthew 19. And we're going to kind of just work our way down through the passage. In verses kind of one and two, uh, Jesus is making his way from Galilee and he's entering the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Essentially, Jesus is moving down towards Jerusalem. And he's going to be moving towards the events that are going to lead him to the cross. And somewhere in that journey, he is met along the way by a group of Pharisees. And these Pharisees are going to ask him in verse 3 a specific question. And I want you to realize it's a specific question in a specific historical context. It's asked by a group of men who have a specific understanding and they're trying to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. The question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The NIV translation has them asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The original question to Jesus is regarding what is lawful? What's, what's permissible? What's allowable? What is acceptable? A pause here because I, I don't know about you, but this feels all too similar to me in how we think about divorce in the present day. Unlike ancient Israel, women in our day and age can now file for divorce. They wouldn't have been able to historically in that time. So that certainly is a difference. But what feels similar to me is starting from the place of what is acceptable? What is lawful for me to consider if I want to consider divorce? What is permissible? The Pharisees here, again, they are trying to test, trick, trap Jesus in whatever he might say. In his commentary on Matthew, R.T. France writes, since it is presented as a test question, we should probably understand the Pharisees to be deliberately broaching a controversial issue 
on which Jesus might be expected, especially if they were, were aware of his teaching already recorded at Matthew 5, 31 through 32, to have radical views, which could easily be represented as a contradiction of the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So, let's look at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Feel free to turn there if you'd like to in your Bible. Again, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. This is uh, the only Old Testament passage that deals specifically with divorce. And the Pharisees are using it as their uh, biblical context for their question. And I don't know if you noticed in there, but it's not actually about divorce per se or what's allowable. It's more about what do you do once it happens and what's supposed to happen from there. Here's some more background for some of the Pharisees' understanding. At this time, there are two schools, kind of two competing schools of Pharisaical thought. One comes from the rabbi Hillel, and that understanding is that divorce is permissible in any and every cause. The second one is from Rabbi Shammai, and it's that divorce is permitted only in the case of unchastity, infidelity adultery. And here's the test. This is what they're trying to test Jesus with. The most widely held view of the Pharisees and amongst men in ancient Israel was Rabbi Hillel's view, that divorce is lawful for any reason. If Jesus's view might be more radical than that, his view might as R.T. France states, easily be represented as a contradiction of the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And then we get Jesus' response in verse 4, but he doesn't start from Deuteronomy 24. He starts from Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. Let's read what he says again. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, the Pharisees start from the place of divorce, and what is permissible in order to divorce one's spouse? 
they ask the question, Jesus doesn't start from that place. Jesus starts from the beauty of what marriage is supposed to be, what God had originally intended. Jesus starts from the place of it's a covenant union between one man and one woman, a union that amazingly and mysteriously makes two people one in the eyes of God. The marriage union images God and the way that he keeps covenant with his people. The Bible Project has a good definition of a covenant. It's written by Whitney Woolard, and it goes like this. A covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. They're often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. That's what happens at a wedding. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they're different from a contract because they are relational and personal. Jesus is confronting the Pharisees' distorted notion of marriage shown through their understanding of flippant divorce, as well as attempting to correct them and bring to their hearts the beauty and the significance of marriage. He stated to them that the original intention of marriage was a covenant where spouses were bound to each other to lay their lives down for one another, to honor God, and to love one another, and to reach a common goal. It's as if Jesus is alluding to the notions, uh, to the notion that the Pharisees are not treating marriage this way by the way they are as, uh, asking their questions. To not live inside of a marriage covenant in ways that honor God and honor the beauty and the significance of the other in the covenant is going to have devastating damage on one or on both spouses. Additionally, Jesus is making the case here, the one flesh union of a man and a woman should not be broken. To break it is like ripping and tearing apart a single body. And then, verse 7, the, the Pharisees, they just, they don't see it. They've asked their question. Jesus has responded not from where they wanted, but he's responded with the beauty of what marriage is intended to be. And their response is, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? First, it wasn't commanded in the Mosaic law of Deuteronomy 24 to give a certificate of divorce if a husband wasn't satisfied. It wasn't commanded, as in there's nothing in that verse that we read that says, if this, you must do this. Doesn't say that. I don't know about you, but I sense uh, the Pharisees are frustrated here. They're trying to test him, they're trying to trap him, and Jesus isn't playing ball. I sense they are frustrated. He's not playing the game they want to play. So they further rip Deuteronomy 24 out of context and apply it in ways that it was never meant to be applied. And then Jesus does what Jesus does. He goes for the jugular of the human heart. Verse 8. He said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
Does that rest on you? We have divorce because of the hardness of heart. To quote R.T. France again, he writes, the Deuteronomic legislation that's in what is in Deuteronomy 24 is a response to human failure. This was because of sin, because things went wrong and because things go horribly wrong. It's put in place because of hardness of heart. What is hardness of heart? It's unbelief. God's people not following the ways of God, not trusting in what he says is good, not trusting in what he says brings blessing. It's not looking to him for our joy and our hope and our identity. Hardness of heart is striving and laboring to go our own way and to do our own thing apart from God, which we've looked at twice in the last two weeks from Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Our hardness of heart also extends to our not loving others the way that we should, not treating others as more significant than ourselves. And then Jesus goes on in verse 8 to say, but from the beginning, when God created marriage, it was not so. It wasn't supposed to be this way. As God had designed marriage and had intended it to be, it was not supposed to be this way. And we could extend that out further from marriage and say, life, life was not supposed to be this way. It is because of hardness of heart, because sin entered the human experience, that it is some of the painful ways that it is. And then again, verse 9, Jesus does what he so often does, and he, he ups the ante. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus seemingly comes back around to answer the Pharisees' original question, but I seriously doubt that he answered it via the route that they had wanted him to go or had imagined that he would go. The I say to you there is authoritative. That's God in the flesh laying out just how serious he takes the one flesh union of marriage and the inseparable nature of it. Divorce is like ripping apart of what God has joined together. The Pharisees, they're treating marriage and divorce extremely flippantly. They're using Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 as a proof text to be able to divorce a wife for any and every reason, big or small, that a man might want to. And what does Jesus do? He throws eternal weight and extreme sobriety into their understanding. Adultery is where divorce, apart from the reason being sexual immorality, gets a person. One might ask why sexual immorality is the exception given by Jesus here in Matthew 19.9 and in Matthew 5.32. I don't have a ton of time here to give an in-depth treating of that, but hopefully it might suffice to mention that sexual immorality, infidelity, within the marriage covenant 
is akin to the Israelites continuously again and again and again, turning their backs to God and cheating on our Lord by worshiping other gods. The unfaithfulness of God's people is such that God declares in Jeremiah 3.8, for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Recall that I said at the beginning, Jesus is responding to a specific question, to a specific question, particularly in verse 3, in a specific context. Even so, I don't think that one can get around the serious weight of what he's saying. In Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19.9, Jesus is saying a hard word. He's saying a hard word to shake the Pharisees and to shake his people for all time since to see the beauty and the significance of what marriage is intended to be and the gravity of what divorce does and what it puts on display. And I think that the shaking and the sobriety that Jesus intends is further solidified by the disciples' response in verse 10. So let's read that. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They seem, the disciples, they seem to grasp the weight and the eternal significance of what Jesus is saying. It's almost like Jesus says it, and they say, whoa, whoa, wow. Sobering. If that's true, if that's the case, then it might be better to never get into a marriage covenant. Their response indicates that Jesus is likely saying exactly what it seems that he is saying. And I would submit to you that Jesus' response to what they say also indicates that he is saying exactly what it seems he is saying. Jesus' response to them is, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Not everyone can receive it. It's as if Jesus says, yeah, you don't have to marry you could stay single. Not everyone can receive that word, only those to whom it's been given. Jesus is, I believe, making the case singleness and celibacy is a faithful option. And then he goes to kind of further illustrate his point to the disciples. He brings in eunuchs. And I'll spare you a bunch of detail uh, and grossness I will just say a eunuch uh, is a male who's had either part or all of his genitalia removed, leaving marriage and procreation out of the picture. I believe that Jesus is using the picture of the eunuch as a way to explain singleness and celibacy as a faithful option. Again, R.T. France writes in his commentary, to us, the use of eunuch language seems unhelpfully extreme when talking about those who could marry but choose not to do so. And the fivefold repetition of the word within this one verse makes it the more uncomfortable. 
But the word would have been no less offensive in first century Jewish culture in which eunuchs were the object of pity, if not horror. The choice of this striking metaphor, get this, perhaps reflects a culture where marriage and the procreation of children were so much taken for granted as the norm that strong language is needed to question that assumption. There have been times within Christian history when it has been assumed that the monastic ideal is the best way of life and that those who marry and have children are on a lower level of spiritual achievement. But Jesus' words give no sanction to that view. The ideal of marriage set out in verses 4 through 9 remains God's standard for his people. And get this one too. But it is not, as many in Jesus' day would have assumed, the only way of faithfulness to the creator's purpose. God's people are not all the same and are not all called to the same path of obedience. I don't know if you caught the two things in there and, and if you identified them as something similar to our own place and time, but I think it is. Marriage is not, as many in Jesus' day would have assumed, the only way of faithfulness to the Creator's purpose. I think subconsciously or consciously within Western evangelicalism and within our church culture, and I feel like I can say it because I've been here from the beginning, marriage has often been held up as this is the ideal, and if you're single, that's what you're shooting for, or at least you should be. Marriage is more important. Marriage is a status that gives you something, and if you are single, then you're a lesser Christian. I think we have some of that in our culture here at Park, but just broadly in the church. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in a second. And then Jesus goes on to give his, his uh, examples here of the eunuchs. In verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. These are people who have never wanted to get married. Marriage is not something that they've uh, really given much of a thought to, and they don't have plans to marry. Then he says, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. These are people who may long for marriage. Perhaps they long for it very deeply, very greatly. But it's never been an option, either because they've never met anyone that they wanted to marry, They've never met anyone that wanted to marry them. No one's ever, no one's ever asked. It's not an option that's been on the table. And then Jesus says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. These are those who choose voluntarily singleness and celibacy for kingdom reasons and or because they believe that it's the will of God for them. In a second, we're going to jump kind of back up to some things higher up in the passage. But before I move on, if you're single, you're here, you're single, because you honor God and marriage with your decision to be celibate and not to marry. If you're single and you'd like to be married, but the opportunity just hasn't presented itself and no one has asked, I've been in the room with many of you who are in that situation. 
If you're single because you believe that it's God's will for you and you choose it to love and to serve in his kingdom, a few questions for you I want you to consider. Do you see that our Lord and Savior knows you? He knows your situation. He is anticipating this is a faithful option. Do you see that he knows you? Do you see and feel that the Savior sees you? He sees the things that you're going through. Perhaps you are one who has that longing on your heart to be married, but for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened yet. Jesus sees you. Do you feel it? And then I pray also, do you see that he honors you? In the light of this flippant passage about divorce and the talk about marriage, which is all important, do you see the Savior holds up your life and says, I honor that? I pray that you do. Maybe increasingly so over the next few days. I pray that you do. There's a few more things that I'd like for us to consider from from this passage or based in this passage. The first one is this. Number one, marriage is meant to be beautiful. It is meant to be a beautiful, God-honoring, binding covenant between one man and one woman for the rest of their life. Jesus, God in the flesh, when given a flippant question about divorce, starts from the place of what marriage is intended to be and the beauty of it. And sadly, too often, things don't go that way. Often, spouses live selfishly. We desire, we order our own needs before the wants and desires of our spouse. Spouses neglect one another. Spouses isolate from one another. We attack one another with words and actions, hoping that it will cut and hurt. And guess what? It cuts and it hurts. There's abuse, verbal, physical, Emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse. People, and it's often women, are oppressed and exploited within a marriage covenant. I know that men can be abused too, but it seems like statistics play out, it's far more women who are. Women, if that's your story, and you're being abused, please come talk to somebody. I can understand if you wouldn't want to come talk to me as a male pastor. If you would, I'd listen. But if you don't feel comfortable, please go talk to one of our other female leaders. Please talk to one of our staff members. We know that abuse is real, and we know that in a room this size, in a church this size, It's happening. 
Please come talk to us. Let us know. We don't want you to live your life that way. And then yes, in marriages in our day and age, because of all of the sadness and brokenness, there's adultery. There's infidelity in marriages. And all of it, all, everything that I just described that goes horribly wrong is because of hardness of heart. It's because of our sin. Because we often don't believe and honor God in the real-time events of life, in the real-time events of our marriage. Second, please don't be irreverent in how you think about marriage. And if you're here and you're married, especially your marriage. And don't be flippant with how you think about divorce. Please, I beg you, I plead with you, do not be thoughtless or carefree in how you use the word or the idea in conversation, especially in a fight with your spouse. Remember what Jesus states in Matthew 19.9 and in Matthew 5.32. Third thing. And I think this really goes towards the idea of uh, Jesus flipping things upside down for us and really shaking what we think we know. I'd ask you to prayerfully consider this. Yes, Jesus does in Matthew 9 state, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He also states in Matthew 5.27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, there's that authority again from God in the flesh. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's Jesus doing Jesus things right there. You, you think the bar is here. You think the bar for holiness is here. You think the bar for justification is here and you think you can hit it. You can't. The bar is up here. The bar is in the human heart and there is hardness in the human heart. In Mark 7, adultery is put in a list of things that are in the human heart. Verse 21 of Mark 7 states, from within, out of the heart, that's the place where we hold desire and will, the things that we want more than anything and the things that we actually do worship. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Adultery is set right there in the middle of a list, a list of things like envy, slander, pride, foolishness, coveting, wanting something else somebody has. It's set in the middle of a list that if we were honest, we do every single day. Where am I going with this? I think that Jesus is giving the religious leaders of his time and his disciples and followers and anyone since 
who would consider his claims, he is giving us no other way than to see he, and only he, is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one has eternal joy and freedom except by coming to him and trusting for them in what he's going to do for us in what he has done on the cross. Think you haven't committed adultery? Jesus raises the bar. Ever look at anyone with lustful intent? I suspect that if there were truth serum going around this room, we would all be pretty nervous about what would be revealed. Did your marriage go poorly? Is it at the verge of divorce? Or maybe it's already ended in divorce, either because of sexual immorality or because of something else. Did you choose it? Perhaps you were the one who didn't want it. Either way, from where? From whom does your redemption come? From whom do you find healing, cleansing, and a being made right and whole? For those for whom this is a part of your story, I want to point you to John 4. I'm not going to go there. I just offer it to you as a place to go to. This is Jesus and his interactions with the Samaritan woman at the well. In the interactions with her, he says, go, uh, call your husband and have him come here. And she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're correct in saying that you don't have a husband. In fact, you've, you've had five husbands, five. And the man who you're living with now, who you're with now, is not your husband. I would encourage you, read that entire account. Not just what I just mentioned, the entire account from beginning to end. See and feel how Jesus interacts with her. Is he kind, gracious? Is he extending this woman grace, mercy, and forgiveness? Ask yourself as you read it, is this Jesus is he one that would approach me in my sin and or in my broken story? Let's say if you're going to marry and your marriage is going to honor God, if you are going to love your spouse well, if you're not simply just gonna stay together because you're not supposed to divorce, but instead you're gonna strengthen the fabric of that one flesh covenant union, it's only gonna be because you depend upon the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus that covers you. Nothing else, that's what you have to depend upon. If you're gonna remain single and celibate for whatever reason in your life, and if you're to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus throughout your life, no matter how long it is, it will be because you cling to and you find nourishment in the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Jesus that covers you. And as such, you feel God the Father's delight increasingly more and more and more. In closing, I'd like to read from Matthew 11, 
28 through 30. It's a text that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, but it's so stinking beautiful and it applies to what we're talking about today. So if you would turn over to Matthew 11, starting in verse 28. And again, as I read this, I'd ask you to consider, I think Jesus is saying, there's no other way that you can do it. The bar is way too high in all aspects of your life, whether things go well or things go poorly, this is what you need. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Perhaps your life is filled with joys. Perhaps you're married and it's going well for you. Perhaps you're single, life is going well for you. You still have to come to Jesus. If not, uh, if not least because we are tempted in the human heart because of that hardness that still remains we are tempted to believe that we did it on our own. Look what I did. I can do a good marriage. No. It is only because of Jesus, and he says, come, continue to find your rest in me. In our flippancy and in our irreverent nature, not just about marriage, not just about divorce, but in so many things in life, we are flippant and we are irreverent. Jesus says, in that, you bring it. Come to me. I'll give you rest. In our devastating ways that we treat one another due to our hardness of heart, Jesus says, you don't have to do that anymore. Come to me. Find rest for your weary souls. Don't labor anymore doing that. Come to me. I'll teach you how to live. In our decisions that are mistakes and failures, never let the devil convince you you can't come to Jesus because you made a bad choice. I did this. This is part of my story. I can't come to him. No. no. Jesus says, come. You come to me. I'll give you rest. That thing that causes you shame, you can lay it down. I'll give you rest. And in our pain that comes from our decisions, our words and actions towards other people, and other people's words and actions toward us, which often happens in marriage, and certainly almost always happens in divorce, Jesus is saying, come to me. That heavy laden feeling that you're feeling, bring it. Come to me, I'll give you rest. I'll give you healing. I'll show you how to live. Jesus is saying to us, and I think he's saying in that passage in Matthew 19, there is no other way. The bar is here. You think it's here. The bar is here. You can't meet it. We still are sinful people, and we need a Savior. And he's saying, that's all right. I've taken care of it. The bar, it's okay. You can erase it. 
You don't have to do that anymore. The shame, it's okay. It's taken care of. Come to me. I'll wash you clean. Come to me and it's done. It's taken care of. It's finished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is, there is so much in this world and there is so much in your word that is beautiful. And there is so much in, in, as we walk in relationship with you that is amazing. And there are things that are hard. There are things that you say that are hard for us to grapple with and to make sense of. There are things in this world that we do and things in this world that are done to us that are just evil and they are difficult for us to wrestle with. There are things in this life that we want answers to and sometimes there just isn't an answer, at least not one that makes sense but you make sense, Jesus. You're laying down of your life for us and saying, I have accomplished it. I've met the bar. You don't have to. You just gotta believe. And so Lord, would you help us to do that? No matter what our story here is, no matter what we've brought with us into this room and from the culmination of our life, would we be able to rest each and every one of us in this room right now, rest in the peace that you offer because your blood washes clean those who you call son or daughter. Help us to rest in it, Lord. Help us to lay down our striving and our laboring in order to find peace and rest in you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.